invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief, a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought them uh, out all on his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them. They did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves, bandits. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I recently read a story about one of my favorite writers and pastors, Frederick Buechner. He was preparing a sermon on Jesus' statement in John's Gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. During the week that he wrote the sermon, he and his wife went to a dinner party, and on their way to the party, they remembered they needed to pick up some groceries. So they pulled into a grocery store parking lot, they took out their shopping list, tore it in half. Beekner headed down one aisle and his wife headed down another. And no sooner had they gone their separate ways when Beekner remembered that he'd left something off the list, the, the Cheerios. So he shouted across the aisle to his wife, don't forget the Cheerios. And she shouted back, and you don't forget the chocolate syrup, but remember, you're on a diet. And Beekner responded by saying, well, you only live once. At that point, the woman at the cash register leaned over the, the breath mints and tabloid magazines and she said, don't you think once is enough? Well, that's what the cashier said out loud, but Beekner said he thought he really heard her say something else. He wrote, I looked at the woman at the cashier, at the cash register, her hair was soaked with perspiration, her face lined with weariness, I think what she was actually saying was, I'm tired. I'm tired of my job, I'm tired of these people and their groceries, and I'm tired of myself. I'll do my job until the end, but when the end comes, I won't complain. 
The cashier rang up the groceries and said to Beekner, once is enough, thank you. But sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? Once does feel like enough. With sabbatical coming up, I've been thinking a lot about work. And that, I think, probably sounds counterintuitive to some people because, I mean, isn't a sabbatical about getting away from work? <laughs> you're not supposed to come uh, to work while you're on sabbatical. The whole thing's designed to offer a break from the potentially exhausting labor of being a pastor. And, well, yes, of course, I mean, pastor, being a pastor can overwhelm you. I mean, even if you're really careful and you do plenty of yoga and take your days off and get eight hours every night. Now, I'm not going to get into all the reasons pastors sometimes experience burnout. Right? Sermons aren't about the pastor and the pastor's life, except in as much as that pastor and their life often act as touchstones in preaching. Not, well, not because the pastor or the pastor's life is especially important, but because ourselves and our lives are the door through which we must all pass on our way to meeting Jesus. But I've heard my colleagues talk, right, about COVID burnout over the past three years. And pastors have been big players in what's been called lately the great resignation. So, you know, add COVID burnout to the increased anxiety over the decline in participation in almost every religious community over the past few years. The reality of too few full-time pastorates, too many passive-aggressive, and let's just be honest, sometimes just legit aggressive troublemakers, failure to meet secret, unarticulated expectations, right? These are just naming a few, but as a result, according to all the studies, my colleagues are heading for the exit in droves. Now, sabbaticals at their best, therefore, are designed to help people provide a, a, a break from the often heavy cognitive and emotional demands of serving a church. So, I mean, you're supposed to use uh, the sabbatical, at, at least in part, to get, you know, some distance, a little, little perspective. But a sabbatical isn't meant to be, like, just an extended vacation. A part of what you're supposed to do is to find new perspective on your life and you'll work as a pastor, right? It's intended to reignite the guttering flames of passion that too often threaten to burn out in the face of the strong winds that blow through congregational life. And what, it's interesting, when I tell my uh, non-clergy friends about it, they say, Psh, <laughs> wish I had something like that at my job. And my first thought is always, you know what, I wish you did too. I do. I mean, we all need some time dedicated to rest and a chance to reflect on the lives we lead, not to mention all the lives we touch. So, so, so thinking about sabbatical and the need for vocational perspective, which just sort of keeps me focused on my job, but it also makes me think about the nature of work itself, right? the nature of employment in general, and, and perhaps more pointedly, the the conditions under which we all work. Because i got to tell you, I've had some pretty awful jobs in my life. 
I've told you about some of them. I mean, I never really wanted to be in a situation where I felt trapped, where I felt like I had to choose between a job I didn't like and not having any money, which I think probably sums up most people's attitudes about employment. I mean, I've worked as a telemarketer. I've worked fast food. I've worked in the service industry. I've framed houses, rust-proofed cars, cleaned factories, and been the guy who sits at a gatehouse in the middle of the night checking in cars. I made orthodontic retainers one summer. I've operated a press and a tool and die shop, been a hospital caterer, and a college recruiter. I've worked on the assembly line at Oven Fresh Bread Factory and Harris Tarkett Flooring. I've packed medical supplies for a company whose name I can't even remember anymore. I've loaded and unloaded semis, taught art history to third and fourth graders, sold Cutco knives, and been an assistant manager at Speedway. In other words, I've had a wide range of work experiences, and some of those jobs truly rewarding, life-changing. And, and some of them were fine as short-term gigs. Some of them were just awful, terrible work, the kind of work you tell other people to avoid at all costs if they can help it. Of course, there's the rub. Many people never have the luxury of being able to choose how they make money, right? They do whatever they can to make ends meet. So, I mean, obviously, some of the lousiness of many of those jobs is the work itself. Tedious and boring or hot, sweaty or grueling and physically exhausting. I mean, let's be honest, some jobs are loathsome no matter how many free lattes and ping pong tables are in the employee break room. But just as importantly, some jobs are horrific experiences because of the people that you work with, right? In fact, the kind of people you work with often has an even greater impact on job satisfaction than the work itself. At one of the rust-proofing places I worked at, two of the guys who used to be drinking buddies uh, when the weekend rolled around, they didn't much care for me at all. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it either. <laughs> I mean, I think what they failed to realize that you and I understand is that I'm delightful. <laughs> anyway, things got so nasty that one day as I was in the coveralls, the mask, the goggles, and the hat that you wear to keep the sticky, oily, black, rust-proofing material off of you, was well, standing underneath a car on the lift, I was spraying this toxic sludge on the underside of a Ford Escort when I smelled something. Those two chuckleheads threw a lit firework at my feet. I don't know what kind it was. I didn't stick around to find out because rust-proofing material is flammable. And so I hightailed it out of there, tearing off all my gear as I flew. And that was just the last straw. I was tired of the harassment. I, I, I mean, I kept quiet about it, but, it, but I, mean, I was just so over it at this point. I headed straight to the manager's office to tell him what was happening. Now, what he did next, I've stored all these years in my mental Rolodex of things not to do if I was ever somebody's boss. 
He called the two guys into the office with me, and I thought, all right, here it is. Finally, a little justice. Somebody with some juice is going to stand up for me. Turns out that was not his intention at all. He said, Derek says that uh, you guys have been picking on him. Is that true? But he, but he sort of did it in a voice that told everybody that I was kind of a whiner, right? A malcontent, a bellyacher. Now, what do you think they said in response? Gosh, we had no idea. We thought we'd, he'd see the humor and gentle teasing that makes for a positive work environment. No. No, what they said was, we don't know what he's talking about. I mean, we're just having fun. We, we have noticed that he's kind of a baby. And the manager turned to me and he said, well, see, there you go. They said they didn't do anything. I suggest you go back to work and just quit being so sensitive. I pulled off my uniform and I walked out. Only time in my life I ever quit a job on the spot. Now, I suspect everybody's had that fantasy at one time or another, right? Just get all fired up and tell everybody off and walk out the door. Just gather your stuff, punch out, sort of strut out of there with a rage-filled, indignant huff, just dramatic orchestral swells, add weight, solemnity to the whole scene, like the, like, like the, the climax of some Oscar-contending movie, you know, Norma Ray or something. What I hadn't calculated as I made my cinematic exit was the fact that I didn't have a car. So I had to walk on the edge of a busy road to call my mother-in-law to come pick me up. It was a payphone at a speedway on the corner of 15 Mile Road and John R. in Metro Detroit. Needless to say, the whole thing was pretty humiliating. I mean, I needed that job. Newly married and just graduated from college, I'd been out of work for four months, and we were living in my in-law's basement. But one good thing did come from that whole experience. I walked inside the Speedway to get a Coke and wait, and on the door it said that they were hiring cashiers. I knew I had to tell my wife what had happened and that I was not going to be bringing home a, a, a paycheck anymore. So I filled out an application, and that's how I began climbing the corporate ladder at Speedway, eventually clawing my way to assistant manager. Thank you very much. See, life feels tough enough when everything's going well and your career's just humming along, hitting on all cylinders. But you throw a horrible boss into the mix, and it can make the world feel like an alien planet where everybody seems to know the rules but you. And you can't figure out how you're going to make it through another day. And it just all feels like it's not worth it. The trouble with so much of life comes from the folks in charge, doesn't it? I mean, they can make or break not just a job, but the whole experience of living. Working under a veritable parade of horrible bosses made me decide that if I ever got the opportunity to be somebody else's boss, well, I'd treat them like I wish somebody had treated me. 
I learned that being responsible for others isn't about finally getting, after all this time, to boss everybody else around, dreaming up new stuff whose primary purpose was to make me look good. Now, all that stuff came back to me as I was reading the gospel for this morning. See, it's the fourth Sunday of Easter, which means it's Good Shepherd Sunday. And this passage from John picks up the theme of Jesus as shepherd. Now, what you may not know is that there's a whole boatload of subtext going on here. But, you know, why would you, right? It all has to do with the shepherd image and the work that that image does. Now, it's not too difficult to understand that, according to Jesus, the shepherd feeds, cares for, and protects the sheep. Fine, but, 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 but why does Jesus feel the need to explain what a shepherd does in the first place? I mean, even modern people with only a casual understanding of sheep have some basic understanding of the shepherd's job, don't they? So, so, so why does Jesus bring all this shepherd stuff up anyway? Well, just before our passage this morning, Jesus has healed a man who was born without sight which, if you remember the story, prompted the local religious authorities to start an investigation into Jesus' effrontery and breaking the law to heal a blind man on the Sabbath. But see, that's the irony of it, isn't it? The, the tragedy of so many people's lives still. that So much of our happiness or our trauma depends on the big wheels at the top of the food chain. People who are supposed to be looking out for us, protecting us, making the world we live in, well, more livable. But in the case of the man born blind, Jesus, whom Jesus heals, the very folks who are supposed to look out for the vulnerable are more concerned with everybody playing by their rules than with the fact that the man has lived his whole life in the shadows, cut off from the community and the world that should be caring for him. Now, that's the prelude to our passage about the great shepherd this morning. Using the image of the shepherd, those responsible for caring for the flock, Jesus launches into a devastating critique of the folks in charge. They've constructed a world where the shepherd is no longer so much responsible for the sheep, but for retaining the perks of being a shepherd. <laughs> in other words, the people tasked with watching over the most vulnerable of the flock have proven themselves sightless. They care more that the sheep don't jaywalk than about the fact that the way they run things has created even more vulnerable sheep. The people who are supposed to be shepherds of all God's people have sold their souls to the oppressive Roman Empire in exchange for getting to be the folks in charge. But what they've forgotten is that being the boss isn't the point, it's not an end in itself. Being a shepherd isn't about burnishing your resume and cashing in on the perks. It's about helping to create a world where the flourishing of the people that everybody else walks past so casually, finally, the shepherd's focus. It's not about bossing the sheep around and holding on to power. The trouble with the folks in charge is that being in charge 
isn't the point. It's about what kind of a world we want to live in. Does it create space for the invisible people? Does everybody have enough to eat, a place to sleep, a means to care for their own bodies and minds? Does it stand vigil against predators who feast on the weak and defenseless? This world over which Jesus is the great shepherd is, is there in front of us. And as much as it's within our power, we've been given the responsibility of helping to tend to that world, a world that's so centered on the sheep that even though we may only live once, once will have been enough. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.